Good morning. How are you? It's Eric Erickson here. I bet you've been waiting for me to cover the presidential press conference. Y'all, I, I just got a note on, on Instagram, direct message, that maybe if we maybe if we put the media in quarantine for 30 days, most of our problems would go away. After this press conference, probably so. We'll get there. Hey, we'll get to, to CNN pushing Chinese propaganda as well. Uh, we're going to try the live stream this morning, but I don't know that it's going to work. The internet is as flaky as all get out today. We will see. Right now, though, I, I want to start somewhere else. Uh, and part of it is, in fact, I need to show some topics around a little bit because I actually did some reporting. Believe it or not, I picked up the phone and made phone calls to get answers to a question so many of you have had. Uh, in fact, a question so many, uh, myself included, have had. And I want to try to set the stage for you and explain this one to you. There's a story in the New York Times that. New York City has decided to change the way it covers um, how deaths are reported in New York City regarding COVID-19. It has raised the death total about 3,700 deaths. The reason it did is because it added presumptive cases to actual cases. Now, what does that actually mean, presumptive cases to actual cases? Well, I picked up the phone because I could see the conspiracy happening. I, I could see people uh, concerned. Let, let me read you the story out of the New York Times, some key excerpts of the New York Times to set the stage for you. Here's the headline and the subtitle. Uh, NYC death toll soars past 10,000 and revised virus count. The city's added more than 3,700 additional people who were presumed to have died of the coronavirus but had never tested positive. Hmm. That sounds suspicious. Let me explain. Here's the opening. New York City, already a world epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, sharply increased its death toll by more than 3,700 victims on Tuesday after officials said they were now including people who had never tested positive for the virus but were presumed to have died of it. The new figures released by the city's health department drove up the number of people killed in New York City to more than 10,000 and appeared to increase the overall United States death count by 17% to more than 26,000. Now, you stop there, you, you hear this, and suddenly you're thinking this is there's a political motivation here. Nobody trusts the government. Nobody trusts Bill de Blasio. Surely this is the um, this is they're owning the president. They, they want to use this to smear the president. That actually among conservatives, that's been the presumption since the story hit yesterday. Well, well. I actually decided, you know, surely there is something less sinister than that, because when you think about it, brace yourselves, this actually makes de Blasio look bad. This actually makes Andrew Cuomo look bad if the death toll is going to be that much. Because remember, there were a lot of governors in the country who shut down their states way quicker than New York did. And de Blasio and his local government were telling people to go dance in the streets and, and have a good time for St. Patrick's Day up until a couple of days before St. Patrick's Day. So this makes them look bad more than it makes the president look bad. Now, I realize the media will spin these things to try to say it's all the president's fault. But this makes de Blasio look really bad. So why would New York City do something? When you scroll down in the story, and a lot of people read the top and they didn't get to the bottom, uh, there is this about the Centers for Disease Control. New York City has been reporting the probable cases to the National Center for Health Statistics for more than a week, health official says. But Dr. Barbeau, who is the head of the New York City uh, Health Commission, 
said the city would continue reporting only confirmed cases to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for its coronavirus tracker because the agency requested those statistics. We are more than happy to report on probable, she said. The CDC, in its guidance to local governments, has recommended that cases of assumed coronavirus infection be noted on death certificates since before New York City recorded its first death on March 14th. Confirmed cases are 6,589. Now, what on earth is going on here? Prior to 2009, when it came to the flu, the Centers for Disease Control required that anyone who had a flu test and it was tested positive and they died of the symptoms of the flu should be considered a flu death. But people who did not get the flu test and died of presumed flu were not counted in the totals. But in 2009, something happened. Uh, there was an outbreak of a new strain of flu, the H1N1, that everyone's been con uh, comparing COVID-19 to. So in 2009, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, and again, I picked up the phone and I asked. I was given the explanation and referred to the resource to find out. The Centers for Disease Control changed the guidelines in 2009 for how the flu was tabulated. Let me read you from the Centers for Disease Control website. Beginning August 30th, 2009, Centers for Disease Control modified their, this surveillance and asked states to report either laboratory-confirmed hospitalizations and deaths or syndromatic cases. That is, cases of presumed influenza and or pneumonia based on an ICD-9 coded hospitalization or death report each week. This is a new system that will be used to monitor trends in hospitalizations and deaths. CDC believes the system will provide a fuller picture of the burden of serious flu Ill illness and deaths during this H1N1 pandemic. The number will be cross-checked periodically against modeling studies to assess its validity. CDC has provided guidance to states on how to count and report these cases. So prior to 2009, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention required that only confirmed flu test deaths were listed. But in 2009, they changed flu to include confirmed and presumed. Now, why did they do this? I'm, look, I'm reading from the CDC website. CDC believes that the regular seasonal flu viruses will co-circulate with the H1N1 influenza and capturing all laboratory-confirmed influenza will provide a fuller picture of the burden. There are also too many cases of flu to test and confirm, so laboratory-confirmed data is a vast underestimate of the true number of cases, and this bias would be exacerbated over the course of the H1N1 pandemic as more and more people become ill. Influenza and pneumonia syndrome are diagnostic codes used in hospitals. Capturing this number will reflect a fuller picture of the pandemic. However, influenza and pneumonia syndrome hospitalizations and deaths may be an overestimate of actual numbers of flu-related hospitalizations and deaths because they are less specific for influenza, but these data can be helpful in following disease trends. In other words, it may not be as precisely specific as a confirmed case, but is a fairly accurate way to gauge. Now, why all of this? What on earth? 
Here's, here's what I was told yesterday, and this makes perfect sense, and hopefully it will make sense to you. Someone goes to the hospital in New York City, and they have all of the symptoms of COVID-19. In a lot of cases, the hospitals aren't even testing those people because they are presumed now to have COVID-19. And so they're treating them as COVID-19 because, again, testing is being undercounted. There's a backlog of testing. They need to get the person treated. And there have been multiple cases in New York City, hundreds of cases, actually, where people have died before they were given a test or died while their test was in process. So we can presume that those people were COVID-19. But more specifically, this is the example I was given yesterday. Let's say someone comes into contact with, let's say person X. We're going to use person X to keep the keep the family tree of this uh, succinct. So person X comes into contact with someone who we know is contagious with COVID-19. Person X gets the symptoms of COVID-19 and does not go to the hospital and in the process is quarantined with their family and their family members get the symptoms of COVID-19. Person X dies, having never had a COVID-19 test. Person X's family members get tested and they're positive for COVID-19. Did person X have COVID-19? Let me give you the scenario again, because this is essentially what's happening in New York City now. Person X has all the symptoms for COVID-19. We know person X came into contact with someone who was contagious with COVID-19, but person X himself was never tested. Person X is at home and dies. Person X's family members get the same symptoms person X had, and they test positive for COVID-19. Did person X have COVID-19? The answer is yes. Person X had COVID-19. We know he came into contact with someone who we know had it, and we know his family members had it, and he died of all the symptoms. Yes, he had COVID-19, even though he wasn't tested positive. That person should be listed as positive for COVID-19, though he was not tested positive for COVID-19. And that's what New York City is doing. It's the same thing that happens with the flu. When you go to the hospital in the United States of America and you are not administered a flu test, but you have all of the symptoms of the flu, you are coded for insurance purposes and hospital category purposes as having the flu. If you die of those symptoms, you are presumed to have died of the flu. Now, maybe you had SARS but they didn't give you a SARS test. Well, you're going to be coded as dying of the flu, not of SARS. Is it accurate? No, because you died of something else. But is it probable? Yes, because you had all of the symptoms, you responded to treatment, but you still died. So their presumption is influenza. It is not 100% accurate, but it is highly accurate. So it's not 100% accurate, but it's in the 85% and higher range, and it gives us a good medical snapshot of how the virus is spreading. That's what New York City is doing now. That's what the United States of America does for the flu. It is not precise, but why do we do it even though it's not precise? Because there's not enough testing capacity for the flu in the country. There's not enough testing capacity for COVID-19. We need a better picture of how it's spreading, where it's spreading, who it's spreading from, who it's spreading to. And the way to do that is to take, okay, this person has all of these symptoms. These symptoms are COVID-19. We do not have a test yet. We're going to treat this person for COVID-19 or this person died. Therefore, we need to do this. Y'all, there's no conspiracy here. And there are people on the right now trying to make this as a conspiracy saying, oh, New York is trying to make the president look bad or they're trying to, to jack up their numbers. I saw someone this morning say New York must have a financial incentive to make it look worse than it is. No, what we've done in the past, so many people have been comparing the flu to COVID-19. 
And they're saying, oh, look at the numbers of the flu, COVID-19. It's a, it's a flu. We get flu-like symptoms. It must be flu. No, they're completely separate viruses. They, they are not even in the same family of viruses. They are a, both a virus, but they're in separate strains of the virus. AIDS is a virus. HIV, it's a virus. HIV and the flu are not the same. They are both viruses, but they're in different families. Coronavirus and the influenza virus are in separate families of viruses. They should not be apples to apples comparisons anyway, but people have been comparing them apples to apples, except there's a big difference. With COVID-19, the Centers for Disease Control only reports confirmed tested positive cases of COVID-19. With the flu, the Centers for Disease Control reports confirmed and presumed. So when you see, for example, in the 2018-2019 period, 34,221 people died of the flu, that's not just confirmed cases of the flu. That's not 34,221 people had the flu test. It was positive and they died. That is 34,221 people looked like they had the flu or tested positive for the flu. They were presumed to have the flu or tested positive for the flu. With COVID-19, it's only been positive tests. It hasn't been presumptions. Now, what New York City is doing is to get a better apples-to-apples comparison is they're treating COVID-19 exactly like the flu. So we can now see the confirmed and presumed COVID-19 cases are this. The confirmed and presumed flu cases are this. And we get a better accurate snapshot. And guess what? And this is why so many people are upset. So many people on the right have hung their hat on on the statement that this is just a form of the flu. It turns out it's not. It is radically different and radically more deadly than the flu. And when you add in the presumed cases, the credibly presumed cases. Now, I know some of you are saying you're muttering right now. I can hear you. But Dr. Burke said they're considering everybody has died. That's not actually what she said. It's been completely distorted. She went back and she clarified that, no, if you fall over dead of a heart attack and, oh, it turns out this person had COVID-19, you're not going to be considered of dying of COVID-19. If you have severe COVID-19 symptoms and heart disease, we know the chief way that COVID-19 kills you is giving you a heart attack. You're in the hospital with COVID-19. You have a heart attack. You have heart disease. We're going to say it was COVID-19 that triggered the heart attack, not the heart disease. You know, there are ways of doing this. The medical community has done this for a long time. With the conspiracy theorists out there who want you to believe this isn't bad, it's just another form of the common cold, are are telling you is that we have to give up 100 years of medical knowledge, 100 years of medical expertise, and 100 years of the way we've always done things in order to believe that this isn't bad. Or maybe it actually is bad, and maybe we don't need to conjure conspiracy theories to make it bad. Maybe we're not actually going through kabuki theater here to make you convinced that you got to stay home. And maybe the medical community actually knows what the hell it's talking about. But it's way easier for some people to believe this is all just government pretend than actually there are a lot of people dying of this. And the only way we know to stop it from spreading and overwhelming hospitals right now is to keep your butt on the couch at home for a few more weeks. All right. I, I You all can have a laugh at uh, Middle George's expense this morning. <laughs> uh, Philip found this story. Uh, let, let me let me give give credit to, to Macon.com, the Macon Telegraph that has this in Bibb County. <laughs> There was a traffic jam. Now, you know, there's very little traffic in the state right now. It, it really is amazing. Although I noticed, where was I? On 
on Monday, I guess, I was out and about picking up lunch. The kids wanted to get out of the house and go look at the storm damage from Sunday night uh, uh, up near us. And there were a lot of people out, and I assume it was all people going and looking at the storm damage because there have not been a ton of people out on the road lately, even around here. And uh, there was a traffic jam in uh, Bibb County. Well, it turns out an alligator decided that there was great weather and uh, Saturday afternoon it backed up traffic at the Joe Tamplin Industrial Boulevard as no one wanted to, to pass the alligator. So animal control had to be called. You know, you don't think of uh, in, in this part of the state, and, and I, again, I'm in Bibb County, uh, you don't think of alligators being in the area, but they increasingly are. And as things have gotten warmer, uh, they, they ventured further and for, further north. I always thought I would like to buy the land in Monroe County, uh, which is right in the mid-state for South Georgia, beautiful area, uh, hills. I would love to buy buy land and build a house one day. And not, I love my neighbors, but I don't want neighbors. Y'all would be surprised the number of people who drive past my house. Um, we've had people show up at our house before uh, to, to threaten us. We've had people who show up just because they want to chat. Uh, we've had people pull into the driveway. We've had gay rights activists do this before. We've had people subscribe me to to pornography and stuff uh, just as a form of harassment. The kids don't check the mail and stuff in our house. And I just want to, I want a big, I want a giant plot of land. And I want to build a big house. And I want to be able to shoot guns. And I thought, you know, I, I would build a lake or something on it so I can go fishing. I don't fish a lot. My kid likes to fish. I got friends who like to fish. I can have them come over. We could stock the pond. And then I thought, what about alligators and snakes? I hate snakes. I hate, I hate alligators. And then I'm just thinking, you know, I, I guess that's the, the, the price you pay. Um, I would totally, totally want to have a tract of land and a pond or a lake just to fish. Not that I fish a lot, but. I don't know. Alligators. I, I, I mentioned yesterday, I've got a friend of mine. He was actually my seminary professor. He was preaching on Job uh, for Palm Sunday and why bad things happen. And he was talking about uh, the Leviathan and Job and the Leviathan. Now, th there are some people who believe that it's the devil, but uh, there's actually some scholarly opinion uh, that the Leviathan mentioned in Job is actually an alligator. That what is it? Uh, the lie of Leviathan. And I forget the other one uh, is the hippopotamus uh, and that the alligator would be the Leviathan. And that or the crocodile was not the alligator, and and he he said he he would be perfectly fine if God had never come up with the idea of the crocodile, and that the answer when when people ask you why on earth would God create a crocodile, why, why would God create a bat? The answer, the the scientifically theologically accurate answer for why God would create the crocodile or the bat or the or the the um or or the spitting cobra or the mamba or anything like that is I have no earthly idea. That is the accurate theological answer. The the number of people who think you must have all of the answers if if you're if you're in the Bible if, if it's theology what have you. The idea that uh, you have every answer. No, there, there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. Why God would create a crocodile, I have no earthly idea. I would be perfectly fine living on planet Earth without them. Um, but I don't know. Maybe we would have an, an overpopulation of something. Now, I'm sure you wanted to dwell on that. When we come back, can we spend a little time? We'll take your phone calls as well. 404-872. Uh, nope, that's the wrong phone number. I'm going to give you guys my cell phone. 877-97-ERIC. Uh, 
973-7425. We'll take your calls. Can we talk about government bullying when we come back? The federal government has just filed a lawsuit against a place in Mississippi for harassing churchgoers over Easter. I, I, y'all, there are so many people working from home right now. And, and I'm, I tried to do a live stream of the show on Facebook. I don't know what I need to do in internet wise. Uh, I, I've got a hard line. I move my connection. I've got a, a, a fancy Cox business line. It's not one gig. Um, I think it's like 300 down 50 up, but man, there are just so many people on the internet. Uh, it, it's, it's given me a hard time. I've been thinking, you know, AT&T now has fiber to the house and you can get like a one gig connection. And I've been thinking maybe I should get that for the family and use, but I want one gig for myself, but man, as a business line, it is super, it's thousands of dollars residential. It's like 99 bucks, but business is like a thousand dollars for a thousand. Goodness gracious. Um, it's, it's just crazy. Um, but nonetheless, there are a lot of people at home using the internet. Now, I wish to go to the phones. I want to go to Michael in Kennesaw. Michael, you're going to be next. Welcome. Hi. Um, I'll get right to it. Uh, I wanted to find out what your thoughts are on the Vernon uh, Jones endorsement. Um, I know a lot of white uh, female suburban voters are, I guess you could say, turning away based on the 2018 election results. Um, But I didn't know if this might be the start of something new as far as a new coalition um, and maybe another domino fall where more black uh, leaders might, you know, start endorsing Republican candidates. And also, um, the San Francisco mayor had mentioned uh, no crowds until at least 2021. Do you think that that might hinder uh, Trump from holding any campaign rallies, which may energize his base? And then I just thought of this while I was on hold. How do you think all the, the culture, as far as door-to-door solicitations and and get out the vote uh, drives and stuff, people coming, you know, ballot harvesting. You think that might actually go away because people don't just don't want to come to the door anymore? Well, Thanks. okay, a, a series of questions there. Let, let me let me deal with them one at a time. Thank you, Michael, for the phone call. Number one on Vernon Jones. I was going to get to that later, but yeah, Vernon Jones, the, the DeKalb uh, elected, a Democrat elected official. He was the, the head of DeKalb County for a while. Uh, he's endorsed Donald Trump. The Democrats have never liked Vernon Jones, and this is their excuse to throw him under the bus. Uh, he's a black Democrat in, in uh, the metro Atlanta area. They do not, they've never really liked him. And now I guess he, he has been in the state uh, legislature as well. So he's endorsing Trump, and, and they want to throw him out of the party. That's not going to get him a bunch of, of additional votes, I don't think. I think where the president is smart when it comes to black voters is focusing on um, small businessmen in the in the black community, which he's doing, and that's going to help him even more. On the rallies and the door issue, they're kind of the same question. Y'all, I listen, we can't keep the country closed. We can't do it. There's a corollary problem. We can't open it. So we can't open it. We can't keep it. We can't keep it closed. What 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 the what the hell is going on? Um, we can't open the country yet because we don't have the testing capacity we need yet. We need to be up to being able to perform two million tests a week, and right now we're only at a million tests a week capacity. Why two million? I don't know, but that is what 
the FDA says. It's what the CDC says. It's what the former head of the CDC says. It's what the former head of the FDA says. It's what the White House team says. It's what the governor's team says. We've got to be able to do 2 million tests a week. Um, in order, if we can get to 2 million tests a week, we can reopen the country and keep it open even in another wave. And we're not there yet. We're close, by the way. We're close. We're, we're over a million and we're climbing. We should be at a, a, able to do 2 million tests very soon. The reason you got to do the testing is because we need to know ASAP if someone has it and we need to be able to do contact tracing. Now, you know, Apple and Google, I haven't mentioned this, Apple and Google have come up with an app they want to put on your phone. And what the app would do is if you run the app, it would work in the background. You never have to actually access the app. And it's kind of neat. Um, so, you know, Apple is big into privacy. Google is not. I, I don't have Google products because other than I do have a Gmail account, um, but I try to avoid Google products because I'm concerned about their privacy. Apple uh, treats my privacy seriously. So what what the app would do, it's actually a really neat technology. So every, every person who loads the app would get a unique identifier. That identifier, when it goes over servers, would strip itself of identifiers based on who you are. So if Apple, for example, or Google were to pull up the identifier uh, that's tied to your phone, they wouldn't be able to tell it's tied to your phone. Uh, The computers would be able to route it to your phone, but you would actually have, they would actually have no idea who it is. So it keeps you completely private. Uh, it, it keeps your privacy, at least on the Apple side of it. I don't know about Google, but on the Apple side, it would keep you completely private because it anonymizes the data in a way that makes it impossible to figure out who you are. But let's say you have it and you're in a room and everybody else in the room has the same app. What would happen is when you get into the room using Bluetooth, Bluetooth is a, is a uh, radio frequency. A lot of devices connect wirelessly. It's not like Wi-Fi. It only, you've got to be within 50 feet of each other in order for Bluetooth to work. So you come within 50 feet of each other and all of the phones connect and everybody's anonymous identifier gets listed. So, all right, here are all the people at this day on this timestamp, all of the people I've just come into contact with, here are all the anonymous identifiers. Now, if I open the app and I look, I can't see that information either. But the app stores all the anonymous identifiers that are tied to cell phones. So one of the people who's in that group, there there are 10 of you there, and your phone now has all 10 of the anonymous tracker IDs from the app that's on your phone. And one of you gets COVID-19, your confirmed tested positive COVID-19. We know that within four days of you testing positive or developing symptoms, you're contagious. So what the app would do is you give the doctor permission to trigger the app. You have to you have to actually be the one to trigger it. The doctor tells you you should trigger it. So you open the app yourself and you push a button on the app and the app goes through and every single person you've come into contact with in the past four days whose anonymous identifier is in there is going to get a push alert to their phone saying, you have come into contact with someone in the last four days with COVID-19. You need to go get tested. You won't know who that person is unless they tell you. You're not going to know which uh, person you've come into contact with in the last four days with COVID-19. But you're going to get the information so you can go get tested. And then if you test negative, you don't do anything. But if you test positive, you trigger the app. 
and the app sends out a notification to all the people that you're with. Now, you're asking yourself, you're asking yourself, what about a prank? Someone decides, hey, I'm going to trigger the app. Well, from my understanding of reading the research, and I'm I'm not a I'm I'm no more a doctor than I am a a computer programmer, but my my understanding of the way the app is based on the explanations from Apple and Google is that before you can trigger the app, there's going to have to be a medical certification, and you will get some PIN number, and that PIN number will allow you to trigger the app. So your doctor, when you get tested positive, you'll get a code, and that code will allow you to then trigger the app. And unless you have that unique code, you're not going to be able to trigger the app. So you're not going to be in a situation where someone just for for giggles decides, hey, I'm going to trigger the app so all my friends think that they've come into contact with someone with COVID-19. And so the European Union is thinking of of doing this. Now, here's the problem. This is the problem. And this is my concern. And I'm concerned in Europe, not here, because the president has already said he's concerned about some of the aspects of it, including this one. The European governments are seeming to suggest they may require everyone to put this on their phone. You know, Dr. Fauci here has made headlines where he suggested that we may need to all carry certificates that we've tested negative in order to go to work or something. When you go back to the, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1970, 1918, uh, there is precedent for that. Uh, San Francisco, for example, had mass laws. Most states had mass laws. Even Atlanta required everyone to shelter in place for two weeks in 1918 uh, because of the Spanish flu. So th- there's a lot of precedent for what we've done. But this technology, the European Union saying you have to keep this app on your phone, I'm th- that one troubles me because – and I don't think we would do it here in large part because this is our uh, property here in in, in – in the Europe does not have the private property rights that we do here. And thankfully we have a president who respects private property, which gets me to where I wanted to go. The local bullies. I don't know if you've heard this, uh, but governor Whitmer in Michigan has decided that she and she alone has the power to tell you what you can and cannot buy at grocery stores and Walmart and places like that. The governor of Michigan has decided that some stores can be open, but those stores are only allowed to sell you essential items. And she has decided she will be the determiner of what is and is not an essential item. So your six-pack of beer could be an essential item, but your 12-pack of beer could not. Your bread could be an essential item, but your cheese whiz could not. Your milk could be an essential item, but the video game you want to buy for your kids to keep them entertained, maybe that's not. She actually wants to do this. Uh, so, for example, clothing could be not considered non-essential, but groceries could be if you go into a Walmart and they're going to have to rope off the clothing sections. She wants to do that. There's no legal basis for her to be able to tell a story you can open, but you can only sell certain things. There's actually not a constitutional legal basis for her to do that. It's this, the local government response more than anything is going to undermine people's willingness to shelter in place and, and to do things. And in fact, you know, I can already see, yeah. So he, let's delve into some of the history of the Spanish flu. When the Spanish flu first broke out, The Spanish flu in its first wave was not very bad. A lot of people got the flu, but not a lot of people died. 
there was a second wave of the Spanish flu as, as, as World War I was spreading. And this is why it's called the Spanish flu. We actually, you know, we now actually believe that the Spanish flu may have come from Chinese railroad workers <clears throat> who made their way through Kansas. There's some speculation that it might have jumped from pigs to people in Kansas. Uh, we know for certain it appears that the outbreak started in Kansas and began to spread, but it appears that it may actually have been uh, migrant Chinese workers who got it, carried it into this country from China. They were sick when they got here, uh, made their way to to uh, Kansas, and it spread from there. Now, that's nebulous, though, because there, wasn't, there weren't pockets of it spreading before there was a town in Kansas where it started spreading, and it spread from there. As, as uh, soldiers were being recruited to go to World War I, they were carrying it to Army bases. The people in Army bases were carrying it to other Army bases. They carried it to Philadelphia. It got on ships. It spread across the Atlantic. It spread around the world. The reason it's called the Spanish flu and not the Kansas flu is because most scientists believe that it mutated and it became deadlier in the second round. In the first round, it was bad enough. It was taking out whole army divisions. I mean, people would get together and uh, the army and you would have an entire platoon go down and it was spread to another platoon and people were having to hunker down, but it wasn't dramatically fatal. Something happened in Spain, though, in, in early, in late 1917, late 1918, and the prevailing theory is that the virus mutated and it became far more deadly and it spread back around to the United States. It killed millions of people worldwide. And what happened is the first round, it was bad enough, even without the death, that people were sheltering in place. Well, then it mutated and became more deadly and it made its way back around the world and people are like, I was sheltered in place the first time, and this was no big deal. I'm not sheltered in place this time. I'm not giving up my lifestyle. And people went out, and people started dropping dead. And it was by the time people realized something has happened, the virus has mutated, it is far worse now than it was last year, it was too late. It was already spreading rapidly. And you can see, and, and there's a lot of health expert fear that something like that is going to happen this time, that we have all sheltered in place. There is particularly on the right now, there's this growing sentiment that, oh, this is all theater. It's not real. Uh, no no one is really impacted. The, look at the rate of death. The rate of death isn't that significant. Well, of course it's not that significant. We're all sheltered in place. Do you know in five weeks of this virus spreading, we've had more weekly death reports than of any other disease on the planet or in the United States, including car wrecks, which aren't a disease, but we, we've had more deaths in five weeks from this on a weekly basis than anything other than heart disease now. It's now past cancer, weekly deaths in cancer. COVID-19 is killing more people per week in the United States than cancer, all cancers combined. Clearly it's different from the flu, but let's be clear and let's be fair and let's be honest. There are places in this country that are sheltered in place where it's not impacting anybody. It's it's not. I've got friends of mine in South Georgia. They're like, why are we sheltered in place? We've got like 10 cases in the county. And they also have like a thousand people in the county. So I, I get that. Uh, I, I think it, we're going to have to revise shelter in place. And that's part of why we've got to do the testing. Uh, I don't think that it is it is reasonable by at past May 1st, and I realize, and the reason I say this, and, and I'm, I, there are a lot of conservatives who would say open it now, but I understand the government concerned about testing, and we got to get the testing situation resolved before we can let people really start getting back out of their houses. 
I get that. I understand it. But I think if we're doing a nationwide shelter in place past May 1, we've crossed from from reasonable to unreasonable because we've got 15 days to do everything we need to do to move heaven and earth to get the testing capacity in place. People can't stay at home forever. People are going to need to go back to work. People are going to get another house. They're going to go check on their friends. They're going to need to have community time, like real community time. So I understand why we're sheltered in place right now. But the idea that we can do this forever or the idea that we're going to go back to it nationwide, there's going to be another wave and we're going to shut down the economy again, I find that absurd. And I also find it something else. I find it to presuppose that the United States is incapable of doing great things. And that sentiment itself offends me. I I have a level of, of, again, you know, I said yesterday I could spend every day talking about uh, the the media hysteria out there. There's a media talking point. There is a media talking point out there today that the president has delayed stimulus checks so that he could he can print his name on the checks in fact the treasury department wants the president's names put on the physical checks now most people are going to get it wired to their bank account so it doesn't matter but some people will get physical checks and if you if you follow reporters on twitter you will see a massive pile of them saying, oh, the checks are going to be delayed. The checks are going to be delayed. The president wants his name on it. The president wants credit. So he's delaying the checks. That's actually not true. In fact, if you bother to read the news story, wherein it says that the stimulus checks are going to have the president's name on them, the Treasury Department also confirms that the checks will go out on time. Now, some people are already starting to get it wired into their account. And I have looked up the information because there are so many people who will be getting the stimulus checks. uh, They are broken down. uh, They they are blocked uh, daily. So every day, more people will get checks, but they cannot send them all at one time because it would overwhelm capacity. Uh, So they have to, they've got to block out a number of people per day. Uh, And it's several million people a day, by the way, will get the checks, but they will roll them out. If you haven't gotten one, you will get one. Um, and if they're in, they will prioritize wires. So you will get money deposited in your account faster than if you get a paper check. If you have a paper check coming, uh, it'll be there, but it's going to take a little longer to get there. It will have Donald Trump's name on the check, but, uh, the, the, the key takeaway here is that it's not going to be held up because of that. It's just, man, it, it is, it's, it's silly. It is, it's silly, silly, silly to see the reporters out there saying these sorts of things. Now, uh, I, man, I gosh, where'd the time go? We're an hour into this thing. We got two hours left, and I still got half of my first hour to talk about, <laughs> in addition to everything else. We will get to it, including the Chinese origins of the virus. You know, the, the Chinese military has clamped down now on stories coming out of China on where it came from. Where did the virus come from? And it is increasingly looking like Tom Cotton was right. The virus came from a lab in China. No, no, it was not a bioweapon. 
No, it was not. Uh, you know, so I, I read a fascinating uh, report on how they can tell it wasn't bioengineered. There are apparently fingerprints in viruses, not not like your fingerprint, but there are ways that you can tell that if a virus has been genetically manipulated, you would be able to see it in the virus. And this virus shows no telltale tracing of manipulation unless the Chinese have invented a way to be able to manipulate a virus that no other people on planet Earth have done. And given the way China has built its entire existence on copying other people as opposed to inventing new things, that in and of itself is highly unlikely. I mean, it's possible, but it's not probable. What is suggested, however, increasingly by credible media sources who were quick to dismiss Tom Cotton and Brandy Maracis is that China discovered the virus. It had possibly jumped from an animal to a person. They were investigating it in the lab. They were tinkering with the virus and it mutated on them or they triggered a mutation and it jumped into a person and began the spread. Not genetically engineered, but perhaps mutated in the vi- in the lab. We'll discuss that when we come back. Hello, it is Eric Erickson. Yes, Georgia, how are you? Hi, Athens. Thanks for joining us. I really miss you, Athens. I, I do, actually. I-, I miss being out and about. And, you know, I- so randomly, I-, I realize, I realize we got stuff to talk about. I-, I Stacey Abrams is in the news today. We'll get there. We'll get there. But, you know, so when I was, when I was younger, I'm still young. Shut up. Uh, When I was younger, I had a friend of mine who his job, and it still is, it's a technical job, but he would travel all over the world. He was gone constantly. He was always in a different country. And I thought it was the coolest thing. I'd grown up in the Middle East. I traveled a lot as a kid, and I thought that would be so awesome. And then I got a job where I literally was on an airplane twice a week, every week for a year. And I hated it. It was exhausting and I was sick all the time. And and then I settled into a more normal routine. And man, I, I miss getting on a Delta flight and going somewhere. I, I miss getting in my car or driving to Atlanta or going to Athens or going out and grabbing a beer with a friend. I, I, I miss that. In fact, Philip, if you're listening, I, I think tonight needs to be front port bourbon and cigar night. Uh, but it just, man, it's, it's man, I miss it. I do. Uh, I, I miss the interaction with people. I miss the interaction with, with people I haven't interacted with in a while, uh, neighbors of mine, and one of them is actually on hold with me. Don't you like that transition? Old neighbor from my old neighborhood, Jake, who works in Houston <laughs> County. Jake, how are you? Fantastic, Harry. That was a good transition. I like it, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, now, for those of you who listened yesterday, I mentioned a Jake who gave me census information. This would be the same Jake who works in Houston County, and, and you're involved with getting people registered and in, in, in doing the census. That's right, uh, Eric. I uh, work with the Houston County uh, Board of Commissioners, and one of the hats that I wear uh, temporarily while the census is going on is the chairman, is being the chairman of the Houston County complete count committee for the 2020 census. And, um, and I just wanted to reach out to your listeners, um, and I do appreciate this platform, to let them know that, you know, and you talked about this um, briefly uh, and in depth yesterday, but just to reiterate what you said about the importance of folks uh, participating in the census is important for the county that they live in. I know that you reach all around Georgia, um, it, you know, wherever you're listening, Houston County, Quitman, Rome, um, 
it's very important that you please participate uh, in the census. And I won't go through a lot of details that you covered, but, you know, it's, a, it's about power, um, money, and business. Uh, power, well, let, let's um, actually go through some of those details okay. a, a little bit because there may be people listening now who weren't yesterday that the federal government gives more than $700 billion to the states each year for various projects. And that is, if, if I understood you correctly, that's divided up a lot of it based on what the census totals are. That's right, and, and the money, I was told, the money does not follow the need. The money follows the numbers. And at first I was like, what? But, you know, it makes sense. This the is more... government. Yes. So <laughs> in a way it doesn't make sense, but <laughs> <laughs> you, you, the, the more folks that are counted in a county or in a state, um, I guess the, the, the feds think there's more need there. So um, that, I guess that goes with that phrase: the money follows the the numbers and not the need. Yeah, I, and I mean, and and that's why I say it doesn't make sense necessarily, is because there may be a real need somewhere. Uh, but yeah. if you don't have the numbers, that they're they're going to give it to the people with higher numbers. And and again, as as a small government guy, I, I hear this. I'm thinking, well, I'm just not going to count because I, I want the government to save money. But that money's going somewhere. The question is, is it going to you or is it going to like Alabama or something? Absolutely. And, and another thing, you know, as I talk to uh, civic groups, they're like, well, is it, uh, you know, is it secure? Yes, um, the, the census information is uh, encrypted. When you send it on, you can do it online. It took me about, and I timed it, and it took me about uh, nine minutes and seven seconds. I knew everybody's birthday. And, and uh, another, some other pushback I get uh, when I talk about the census is, well, you know, that's a lot of information. And I tell them, well, pal, the, the, the car that you're driving in, the house that you um, live in, the mortgage, um, the applications that it took to get that car or that mortgage, um, your information, you know, that you disclose to that company is a lot more information than what the census would ever ask for. So your information is already out there. Somebody's already got it. But it won't be the census. They ask. Yeah, I mean, you know, Google is selling you around the country, and the census at least Ab- is not selling your information. Absolutely, my friend. <laughs> so Absolutely. now, what? Just it took you about nine minutes to to do it, and I think you've got more kids than me too, so it would take you a little bit longer than me. But um, it, it took me. I mean, maybe nine minutes. The hardest part for me was it, it wasn't working in my web, my Safari web browser on my Mac. I had to go get Chrome to to do it, and then it turned out it was actually my web browser. It wasn't the census census <laughs> site, but. Uh, it, it asked for me, my my, and my birthday, and whether I was yep. uh, what my race and ethnicity were, and then my wife and my kids, and that was it. It, it didn't do the long form census some people are familiar with, where it asks you how big your house is, how many toilets you have, and all that. It was just who lives in your right. house. That's it. Basically, that and and the long form, uh, you know, a small segment of the population will get that long form, but for the majority of your listeners, they'll get the short form. They can do it. Uh, on their tablet, the computer, um, on their phone, uh, it's really this go around versus 2010, where it was all a paper copy uh, and a lot of handwriting. But this is just a few clicks, taps on your keyboard, and you're good to go for real. And the other big thing, I, I guess, is that I mean, given the situation, if people can't be showing up at your door right now. Which in a normal census year, if you don't fill all this stuff out, they're going to show up on your door. That's right. The uh, the the folks that um, that would go to non-responding addresses they're not doing that um or i mean they'll not right now they'll be doing that 
a little later on the census um, deadline has been extended or will be I believe um, shortly um, but the door knockers as I call them uh, will not be coming out they eventually will so if you don't want a new friend coming knocking on your door just go ahead and complete your census online and you got it taken care of and I want to send this out to folks in Houston County uh, the Warner Robins Centerville Perry area please participate in the census Please. Yeah, I, I want County. you people in Bibb County, number. where I live, to listen to Jake because I want y'all to participate so we get more money <laughs> than the freaking people in Houston County who always get more money than us. <laughs> the folks in Bibb County, hold your ears. Houston County, definitely participate in this. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, statewide, it, it's good for everybody. Um, your your radio station is all over Georgia. So everybody in Georgia, if you if you hear me and Eric talking about the census, please participate. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, thank you for, for one for putting it on my radar because as I told you the other day, I, I have had this. I, I keep a little outline of what I want to talk about, and it has been in there for a month. And the virus has kept putting it off. And, and when you reached yeah. out the other day, I was like, "Man, this is this is God's way of telling me you need to talk about the census." Please don't tell me that I'm God, but you know we both worship <laughs> Him. But, um, but <laughs> far from Him. But I, I thought it was it was when you sent me that. I said, "Man, that's pretty cool that you know that it was on your radar and that helped put it push it over the line." So I, well, I'm, look, I'm I, I appreciate you. I, I hadn't seen you in a long time, and it's good to hear your voice. Absolutely, we'll have to get together soon, sir. Yes, indeed. Uh, that is Jake. Works for Houston County uh, on the census, and, and man, he's he's one. He's a great guy, and, and two, he's right. Uh, and this is every county in the state of Georgia. You need to do this. Now you're wondering, uh, one of the things we didn't talk about, maybe I should have, maybe I should have brought, what is the website? Well, you should have gotten a piece of mail with a pin number. Uh, and if you didn't, it doesn't matter. What you can do is you can go to my 2020 census.gov, my 2020 census, C E N S U S.gov. You can click that. You you can go to that link and you can fill it out. And it, I mean, seriously, it, it took me. I, I think I I think he's got one more kid than me. Um, and and all it does is and asks you what is your name, and what is your birthday, and what is your race and your ethnicity, and and that is are you Hispanic or not, uh, or American Indian or Asian, uh, and then are you white or are you black, uh, and that's it. And then it asks uh, if you're married or unmarried. And asks who else lives in the house, and then you give a qualification: uh, Is it your 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 mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, your your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your child? And you put in their names, and that's it. That's the information that it needs. Now, the federal government, you actually have to, by law, give them this information, and they will eventually. And this is the key here: they will eventually have someone show up at your door. You'll think it's the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to visit, and it's the census worker. And they're going to show up and they're going to ask you uh, questions. And if they show up, they may ask you more questions than that. And you have to answer the questions. It is by law. It is actually in the United States Constitution. This is one of the few things that you are impacted with on a regular daily, or I shouldn't say regular daily basis, but every 10 years you are impacted by this based on the United States Constitution. And it goes to allocate federal money to your county. It goes to divvying up uh, congressional districts. Georgia, if we all fill it out, uh, Georgia may get another congressional district. That's one more Republican from the state of Georgia headed to Congress, and that's going to dilute Nancy Pelosi's power. So conservatives, you better be filling out the census. All of these issues at play. 
Uh, and I, I, I genuinely hope and wish that uh, you would engage on the issue. I did it. It didn't take long. You can go online, uh, my2020census.gov. Uh, if you if you if it doesn't work for you, if you're running into problems, call your county commissioner and they can help you do it. Uh, the county commissions are deeply invested in this because it really does go to federal grant allocation. You know, like Jake was saying, th- this is one of the problems. Let, let's say we've got a real need in. Well, let's not use Georgia because Georgia has the numbers. Let, let's pick a rural state. Let's pick Wyoming. Wyoming per capita. Wyoming has the smallest population in, in the nation. It's still got more people than Iceland. But Wyoming has the the smallest population in the nation. And let's say Wyoming actually needs a major interstate repair. Wyoming isn't going to get that interstate repair money, even though it really needs it, compared to, let's say, Georgia wants to do some sort of interstate project. Georgia is more likely to get it than Wyoming because although Wyoming may have a real actual need, Georgia has more people. And that's, that's kind of screwed up, but that's the way the federal government does things because they presume if there are more people in the state of Georgia, there are more people using Georgia infrastructure, therefore there are, there's a greater need. And, and when you look at it that way, government trying to take the path of least resistance in determining needs, they do it based on population. But they can't do that even based on population unless you go to my2020census.gov and you fill out the form. It is deeply relevant. But here's the other thing. You know, we got a foster care problem in Georgia. We are overwhelmed with a foster care system in Georgia, and we don't have enough people getting kids into their homes as foster parents. The federal government under the Trump administration has stepped up to provide additional foster care funds for states, but that money is also allocated based on census. And that makes sense there because the more people a state has, the bigger there's a foster problem in the state, a foster care shortage in the state. More people, every state, basically, they're all screwed up when it comes to foster care. And you know when there are more people in the state, the problem is bigger. And so if you fill out your census, you're helping the foster care situation in your state because you're ensuring that your state is going to get enough funding from the federal government to help mitigate problems. It is really vitally, critically important that you fill out the census, not just for roads and infrastructure, not just for congressional districts, not just for stuff like that, not not just for uh, being able to rewrite the congressional districts and the, and the state house and the state senate districts, but for funding for things like foster care, things like special needs education, things like uh, t- funding for, for childhood uh, food programs in, in public schools for the poor. All of that money flows to states based on census data, not based on actual need, but based on census data. And so if Georgia doesn't do it, if you don't do it, your county will not get the money your county should otherwise have. And your taxes at the local level are going to have to go up to offset the money you're not going to get from the federal government. So if you don't want a local major spending cuts and you don't want local major tax increases to cover shortfalls that come because you didn't fill out the census form, it's really easy. You go to my2020census.gov and you fill out the form and guess what? The federal government will count you, will count your county. And when they award the block grants and divvy up the money based on population, you will get what you actually should get. Now, interestingly enough, Bibb County, where I am, is is less than 40% compliant right now. Houston County is typically around 60 to 66% compliant. I think they're in the 50% range right now. 
Uh, some counties I was looking at, Clark is actually down significantly. Uh, and North Georgia counties are down pretty significantly. The worst is down in South Georgia, though. Those counties, significant uh, lack of participation, and those counties are having to mobilize. The governor is having to mobilize. Uh, the governor of the state is mobilized on a bipartisan basis to try to get people to do the census. Now, it is that big, and I'm okay doing two full segments in two days on this because it is that big of an issue. Uh, we will see that money. That money is not going to stay in Washington. It's going to go somewhere. The question is, does it come to Georgia because we filled out the census, or does it go to another state? that did a better job than us. Uh, George matters. Your population matters. Your census matters. Please get it done. You can also call the program. What is the number? It is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. So the media, man, we haven't even made it out of the first hour of, of the stuff that I want to talk about. By the way, uh, I got Governor Kemp in the next hour. Uh, I guess I should have led that. Uh, that should have been the headline for the show today. Uh, we we sat down late yesterday and actually recorded the conversation. I'm going to bring it to you. Uh, man, I'm a terrible radio show host. Yes, the governor of Georgia is joining me at the top of the next hour. You're going to want to be here for that. <laughs> Y'all, it is Wednesday. We got two more. And you know, just, okay. Begging Tom Cotton's problem. I'll get to you, Tom. I mentioned this yesterday. Y'all, every day, it is like Groundhog Day. I told a friend of mine last night, I was halfway tempted to sit in the bathtub with a toaster just to see what would happen because I'm pretty sure it'll just start the next day at this point. Holy cow, every day blends together. And I, I've got people, in fact, I was out for a walk yesterday in my neighborhood and, and somebody, it, it did not dawn on them that I live here. You know, okay. If you've listened to this program since August, I've, I've been on the air since August. And if you've listened uh, since August, uh, I, I occasionally reference my local Publix and, and my local Margarita's Mexican restaurant that I love. It's right across the street from my house, from my neighborhood. I love it. And, and the, I got the Chick-fil-A. It's, it's the perfect setup. I got a Publix, which I, I just love. I've, I've got a, I've got a, a Chick-fil-A. And I've got a Margarita's Mexican restaurant. There's even an ice cream shop and a Chinese restaurant right nearby. It's perfect. The only thing I'm missing is a good bakery coffee shop. And allegedly a Dunkin' Donuts is coming in. Dunkin' Donuts just isn't the same. I want, I, I it, it, so if you're familiar with Bass Road making, major traffic comes down Bass Road to get on 75. And there used to be a Starbucks, which Starbucks is crap. Let's just be honest. Starbucks is terrible coffee. Uh, the people go to Starbucks for other stuff. They don't go for the coffee. Uh, the coffee is actually terrible at Starbucks. Now they put the coffee in with, with, with the mocha caramel latte garbage. And that's what you people drink. Uh, but real people just drink coffee and their coffee is burned garbage. It's, it's awful. Uh, and there should be room for a coffee shop. Now, up on up near me, there's this great place called Cathedral Coffee. They're closed right now because of the virus, but they got great coffee, but I got to drive up there to get it. And the one thing they don't have is a great bake shop. They're, I just, I, I'm a firm believer that there should be a bakery with great coffee because when I travel the world, I encounter bakeries with good pastries and great coffee. I love a real croissant, not those, not those prepackaged, pre par-baked garbage things you get in some place, but a real croissant. There should be like, there's this place. What is it, Dutch Monkey, up north of Atlanta and coming? It's an incredible coffee shop and bakery. They make the best donuts on planet Earth, 
And I just, I want one of those. But otherwise, so I, I talk about this and it, it finally dawned on someone. I was out walking yesterday and it dawned on them that I actually live where I live and, and that I'm actually in the neighborhood, which may not be a good thing, but they were just shocked. I'm like, you haven't listened enough to realize that I, I, this is the Publix. I love my Publix is what I'm referencing. I don't know, but it all runs together now. And and that guy started asking me something about what I said on the radio. I had no idea what he was talking about. It's all life has blurred together at this point. I don't know what day it is. Actually, I do. It's Wednesday. If you need to know, it's Wednesday, April 15th. It's tax day. But remember, they put off taxes. But life has just blurred together now. The one day ends, the next day begins. Do I shave? Do I do I put pants on? These are the existential questions of life you did not have to ask yourself before a few weeks ago. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, there was no question. Yes, you put on pants, you're going to get arrested otherwise. Now, I don't know. Do I shave? I don't know. Do I brush my teeth? Yeah, you probably want to do that. Life needs to get back to normal. I'm starting to get a little stir crazy, and I know I'm not alone. Tom Cotton and the Chinese when we come back. I don't know about the rest of you, but my Gmail crashed. Wow. Uh, the internet. Okay. Let, let's talk about China and Tom Cotton real quick. I, I got several things on China today. But where did the virus come from? Uh, I, I've mentioned before the, the, the guy that Joe Rogan talked to, the epidemiologist from the University of Minnesota. I can't remember the guy's name. It was a very fascinating podcast interview, actually. And he talked about they can fairly well trace... The, the viral jump had to have happened in mid-November. The first Chinese case wasn't reported until December 1st, and it was believed then to be uh, animal-to-human contact. Now, I did not know this. I, 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 I genuinely, I, I'm, I'm learning a lot. I, I am no expert. Neither of you. I, I was kind of a jerk to someone on Twitter last night, and I didn't mean to be, but he was telling me um, that... I didn't know what I was talking about, and and I don't know what I'm talking about on the epidemiological stuff, and he's right, and I pointed out to him I'm just a talk show guy, and I was a lawyer, and he's a realtor, and he doesn't know either, but unlike him, I actually picked up the phone, and I called the CDC, and I talked to experts to try to to get answers to my questions. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do that. Yeah. I, I, I'm not just talking. Yeah. Okay. There are times that, that every radio show host just kind of wings it. I get that. But when it comes to stuff like this, I, I'm spending a lot of my time trying to disabuse people of their notions and beliefs and mythology that they've read on Facebook and Twitter. And to do that, I actually have to pick up the phone and actually have to call actual experts and talk to them. And more often than not, what I try to do is I talk to a couple of different experts. And the reason I'm doing the reason I do that is because there's so much, like, for example, if, if you're just tuning in, there's a story in the New York Times. And it shows in New York City has adjusted the way it uh, announces COVID-19 cases, and it has increased by about 3,700, the number of people it says died of COVID-19. These were not people who had a test. They're presumed cases. And why would New York City do this? Well, because the CDC says that with flu, you do presumed cases, not just actual confirmed positive tests. And New York City, to get a more accurate snapshot of what's happening with COVID-19, decided it needed to treat COVID-19 by the same standards by which it treats the flu. And by the way, the CDC has asked it to already do this 
for in terms of counting deaths, just not to report that to the CDC right now, but to do it later. So New York City is just doing what everybody else has been doing with the flu. Now they're doing it to COVID-19, presumed and actual testing. It's not hard. There are actual real answers to this. But I, I was I, I was engaged in this with a with a guy on Twitter last night who's a realtor in Atlanta, nice guy. And he said I was being a, a bit of a jerk, and I didn't mean to be. But, you know, I actually picked up the phone, and he was telling me, well, I read it's not true, and I read on the Internet. And da, 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 da. I actually called the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I actually talked to a human being who actually referred me to someone who is an expert, who actually explained to me what they do and do not do. And I, all, all I can tell you is, you can read about it online and stay at a Holiday Inn Express these days and presume you're an expert, or you can actually call the freaking experts who actually are experts who have spent their entire careers on this and get answers. That gets me back to Joe Rogan. He actually talked to a real expert. And it was kind of interesting, uh, it, this one aspect of it. Listen, I, I and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be insulting here. I promise. I promise, I promise, I promise. I promise. I know people who are really into homeopathic treatments for things. I don't want to go down the essential oil road, but I, I've I've got friends of mine who are heavy into it, and I've I've got family members who take probiotics and prebiotics and all that sort of stuff. And it was interesting listening to Joe Rogan talking to this expert epidemiologist from the University of Michigan, and Joe Rogan brought up probiotics. And the expert says that he had been a big advocate of prebiotics and probiotics. And I have no idea what the difference is between the two of them. But he had been a real advocate of those things. And the more studies that he has read in life, the more he realizes it's a placebo effect and it actually doesn't do what is claimed. And all of you right now are yelling at me and I can feel it in the force. But this is, this is an expert epidemiologist. He has spent his life's work on these sorts of things. And he has, has noted that it, there really isn't a body of research that suggests that this stuff is real, that, that it actually works. There are some things that do, like for example, essential oils typically beyond placebo effect don't work. Now, let's be clear here. There are some though that were for smells in your house or use peppermint oil if you're congested. It's like using Vicks Vapor Rub, things like that. And there are some essential oils that actually do have medical properties that actually do work. And there are some things like a buddy of mine texting me right now on lavender that you, the scent has been shown for a lot of people to actually help relax them. But there are a great many essential oils that people use that don't do what they claim. I've actually had people suggest to me essential oils to cure cancer, and I'm not making that up. In fact, the relative of a, of a friend of mine uh, has unfollowed me from Facebook 
uh, because I was a little bit too snippy with her when she suggested a, a certain essential oil cocktail would cure my wife's cancer. There are some people who desperately believe in things outside the medical norm uh, because they feel in control, they feel empowered, and oftentimes there's a level of pride. They feel smarter than the average bear. And I again, I don't mean to be insulting, but there's no medical body of research that shows as a whole that these things work. And that's one of the things this doctor was talking about is that the, the probiotic research shows it is more a placebo effect. And the placebo effect is real, by the way. No one disputes the placebo effect. There are some people who will take a medicine that is not a medicine. It's just a sugar pill, and they will be cured. And we do not understand it. We do not understand it. And yet we know that it works. And when they do sampling for drugs, they need to see is the, is the efficacy of a drug greater than the placebo effect? without having negative side effects. And they actually do research. There are people who do this. And Joe Rogan talked to one of these guys. And, and it was just interesting to see Rogan and this guy talking. Rogan, who's a big advocate on healthcare, health supplements and, and probiotics. And the doctor's like, you know, I, I took them for years. But turns out there's actually no scientific research out there that suggests they work. In fact, all of the scientific research is to the contrary. And you could just see the kind of you could see Rogan's skepticism. Like, wait a second, I I I take these things. Maybe he sells them as I don't know. Um, but but he's like, you mean I'm I'm wasting my money? He's like, yeah, we we both been wasting our money on them. And it was a really fascinating conversation to 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 see someone uh, have their beliefs challenged by someone who actually is an expert in the field. But also, the guy said stuff about this, like I'm I'm conveying this right now, and many of you are skeptical. And you could see Rogan did not believe the guy in in some cases on what he was saying, and largely it's because Rogan himself has seen personal benefit, I suspect, and therefore he's willing to elevate his personal experience over what expert scientific opinion says, which is totally fine and valid. The question is, is it a placebo effect or not? And that's where the scientific research comes in. But as he engaged with this guy and was talking with this guy, one of the things the guy said is that you can actually tell viruses that are capable of jumping from animals to humans. And then you can tell as those viruses evolve how they've transmitted human to human. And a virus that goes from an animal to a human has slightly different characteristics from a virus that goes human to human. And you can tell the virus that goes from animal to human and then begins to start transmitting human to human has changed slightly. It, there's There's been an, an evolution in the virus, a mutation in the virus that then makes it easily transmittable between humans. And that's why this epidemiologist is deeply, deeply worried about, uh, what is it, chronic wasting disease in deer. Because he said in, in chronic wasting disease in deer, for those of you who are, I was not familiar with it, um, I, I have since started reading about it, and it is horrific. My goodness. Uh, and what he was saying is, is one of the things he studies in Minnesota is chronic wasting disease in deer because it is his prediction that that is going to be the next major global fight because it is very hard to test for chronic wasting disease. It takes a very long time. And by the time you have tested for it, the odds are the butcher has already processed the deer and you have already turned it into sausage and you've either eaten it or frozen it. And that chronic wasting disease, if it ever makes it into humans, is going to be terrible for people. 
And uh, it's only a matter of time, he said, because you can see in, in these viruses, these coronaviruses, how they begin to develop to transmit from not just deer to deer, but deer to skunk, deer to bird, deer to pig, and then into humans. And what he says on the this COVID-19 is that you can see that it is a very new virus capable of jumping into humans. That coronaviruses, when they've jumped into humans, they have certain characteristics. And then as they begin to spread among people, they continue to mutate as they become accustomed to spreading through the human bodies. And you can actually fairly well trace back and, and pinpoint when this virus would have been capable of jumping into human beings based on its mutation rate. And that this virus probably more likely than not would not have been capable before the, the beginning to middle of November of being able to get into humans. And in fact, the very first case we know of was December 1st, and it appears to have been an animal-to-human transmission. And this expert from Minnesota, University of Minnesota says he suspects pangolin because there have been a number of pangolins uh, caught in China that had 99% of the characteristics of this coronavirus. And that most coronaviruses actually come from bats that they jump from bats into other animals and then other animals into people, that a lot of these coronaviruses originate in bats and that it could very well be uh, that it was a bat to pangolin transmission that then transmitted into people. Then that's speculation on his part, but the odds are it was a pangolin. A pangolin is, is the most endangered animal. Uh, they're, they're weird looking little animals and, and Asian anteater. They've got a, a variety in Africa. They got a variety in, in Southeast Asia, uh, that has migrated up to China and they're sold in the wet markets in China. But here's the thing, Tom Cotton, the Senator from Arkansas speculated on this program and elsewhere that the odds are this virus did not originate in the Chinese wet market, but went to the Chinese wet market. And that it probably came, there is, a, there is a laboratory facility in Wuhan, China that studies coronaviruses. And that lab, unlike American labs, uh, there are levels for labs. There, I think it's level one through five, and five are like the most dangerous uh, viruses on planet Earth are studied. Um, you're talking Ebola, you're talking anthrax, that's level five security. And... American labs that study the coronavirus, given their, their ability to transmit from animal to human, uh, keep the coronavirus uh, at level four. So uh, high, high protocol, very restricted access to be able to um, study the coronavirus. But the Chinese lab in Wuhan only does level two. That, that's not a lot of safety protocols. And it is highly likely that the coronavirus, there was an accident and somebody in the lab got infected and carried the virus to the Chinese wet market. That it did not originate in the Chinese wet market, but someone carried it to it and it spread. And the odds are it was a lab worker who accidentally got infected. Now, the way the media reported it when Tom Cotton said it is that Tom Cotton was accusing China of engineering a bioweapon in a lab. Tom Cotton never said that. He never said that. What he said was that it was possible this was being studied in a lab and someone accidentally got infected. And the media lit him on fire over it. They accused him of racism, of xenophobia, of lying, all of these things. 
but he never said it was a bioweapon, just that it was being studied. Well, now guess what? It turns out there is a growing body of evidence that that's exactly what happened. Uh, the Washington Post apparently has a story forthcoming. I, at least now I, I should say the source on this is Seraldo, so maybe not true, uh, but I've heard it separately from him now as well. It, it could all be a feedback loop. Uh, but uh, there are uh, there is growing scientific evidence and, and growing number of scientists in the scientific community saying, yeah, that actually is probably what happened. They This virus probably did jump to a human in November. It probably was being studied in a laboratory. Something probably did go wrong in the lab and someone got infected in the lab and it mutated and began to spread person to person. What we know for certain today as well is that China for six days in January realized for certain that it had begun to spread person to person and they did nothing. For six days in the middle of January, the Chinese did not tell anyone there was person-to-person spread. And that screwed up the global timeline. Here's the other thing. The media would like you to know that the president should have done more in February. But Dr. Fauci was on TV February 1st, February 21st, saying there was nothing to worry about. And the head of the CDC was on TV in February, at the end of February saying the same thing. There was nothing to worry about. Do you know why they were saying at the end of February there was nothing to worry about? Because the only cases that existed in the wild that we knew of in the United States were people who had been to China and come back, and they had transmitted it to family members, and that was it. And we had traced those people. We had tracked those people. We knew that they weren't spreading it in the wild. Here's what we did not know. And we did not know because of the Chinese lies. It had begun spreading human to human way sooner than the Chinese told people, and it had gotten loose in Europe. And much of the spread that we have seen in the United States on the West Coast and the East Coast actually came from European travel, not from Chinese travel. And no one, Democrat or Republican, expert or amateur, hobbyist or professional, knew that. There was nothing the president could have done. The virus was already spreading before anyone realized it because China lied and now people are dying. I'm glad I heard that promo. I'm still getting questions from people who want a copy of the Good Friday show. You can get it by texting show to 33777. Now, one thing you can't get is you cannot get the, um, you can't get the music in the Good Friday program. And the reason you can't get the music in the Good Friday program is because of copyright and licensing rules. It's so convoluted. Um, you know, a lot of people put commercial music in their podcast and it's actually, you can't under copyright law. And if you try to put it on, on Facebook or YouTube or Apple music or something, your account gets flagged. Spotify will throw your podcast out. We've got to strip the music out. Uh, of the program before we put it on uh, online because of these licensing rules. I can, for example, if you're listening to a live stream on a radio program, in fact, we're going to have a li- the live stream of the show will be on The Resurgent soon, and you can't actually um, – you can, you can run a live stream and you can run the music in the live stream. 
and you have to pay a licensing fee and the minimum is 500 bucks. It depends on how much music you put in, but the basic rate is $500 and the federal government sets the rate. But then when you convert it into the podcast, you got to strip all the music out because there's never been, I mean, podcasters don't have a lobbying association. Now I will tell you that uh, some groups, allegedly Apple and possibly Spotify from what I've read and maybe Google are trying to negotiate deals where they would cover the costs for podcasters who want to use the commercial music. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's deeply frustrating. Uh, but so we, when you listen, if you get the podcast of the Good Friday show, you're not going to hear all the music. And the music is such a part of the program, but we just, we can't do it. Um, we actually, when I first got started, uh, I got a, I, I did it and I got a nasty letter uh, from one of the big music companies um, just saying, don't do it again. Uh, luckily, they didn't sue, uh, but they would have been in their right to sue, and they didn't. Um, but if you want it, text SHOW to 33777. You get the daily podcast. You'll see the Good Friday show in there. Uh, the president is bailing out banks, and he's ba- – well, not banks, airlines now. They may do banks. They're bailing out small businesses. We had this big controversial press conference again yesterday. He's cutting funding from the World Health Organization. That's become a thing. I want to play you all that when we come back. But first, when we come back, Governor Brian Kemp, we sat down yesterday. I want to bring you that interview when we come back right here on the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Hello. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Late yesterday, I sat down with Governor Brian. Well, I didn't sit down with him. He called me. Uh, we we did not want to to do a face-to-face interview. It's, it's, it's quarantine season here in Georgia. So I want to bring for you the conversation I had with the governor of Georgia now. I do have the governor of Georgia on the line with me. Governor Kemp, how are you? Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I, I'm glad you could. I, first of all, yesterday was really more the, the Brian Kemp show and, and the Donald Trump show. than I think I got 10 total minutes of talking in yesterday's show, but that was great because I thought your press conference was great. And I wanted to start again with the issue you were really focused on yesterday, the testing issue and ramping up testing in the state. If you could talk about that. Well, we are. I've actually uh, been working all day today on our testing. As I said yesterday, the status quo is unacceptable. Uh, I've got General Tom Carden and the National Guard working with Dr. Toomey's team so we can do a better job of that at the uh, state testing sites that we have to make sure we're using every test every day um, to put those things to good use. But we've got to continue to look to our private sector partners as well because really that's going to be something that we need not only in the near term, Eric, but in the future as we try to open the economy back up when that day comes. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that. What's it going to take to get the economy back up and going? Well, the thing that's really hard on this is these models we're following, they keep moving, um, which is good. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm pleased at what I'm hearing from the President Trump's task force and what Dr. Burks is talking about and the data that they have. They're really drilling down on the hotspot areas to supply PPE and equipment to the states and cities when they need it. 
but it's also a little bit frustrating at times because our model keeps moving, um, which is, you know, our, our peak date was April 20th, then it went to the 24th, then the 26th, and I didn't even know yesterday when I went to the press conference, evidently while I was walking out of the Capitol to the press conference at Liberty Plaza, the model changed and the date moved to May 1st. The good yeah, I'm thing looking is right now the model, it's May 1st. Yeah, the good thing is in the model that our hospital bed capacity continues to move in the right direction. So I'm feeling even better about that. We've got a lot of great things going on. We're, and you ought to see what's going on over there at the World Congress Center right now. The National Guard and our private sector vendors standing up that makeshift hospital facility. We've done staffing contracts to bring in 570 healthcare workers to help with these new beds, also to help with existing um, healthcare workers that, you know, may test positive and some hospitals or long-term care facilities fall short. So I feel real good about that situation, but really testing in the nursing homes are the two things that continue to worry me the most. And uh, I know the National Guard has got a team that they're putting on the testing, so I, I feel certain in the next week or so we're going to be moving the needle and general Cardin's is going to be demanding action and that's what i've charged them with and then we'll continue to send those guard teams around to our long-term care facilities for cleaning and also to to teach and help train with infectious disease controls and just try to lend a helping hand as you know that's been a big problem not only in georgia but all over our all over the country uh, with that vulnerable population and i just want to be able to tell your listeners and look in the TV camera every day and say we are doing all we can to be helpful in regards to those, you know, to that population and into those uh, places of business. Well, you know, let's play this out a little bit in in talking about the model. I've got the model pulled up, the IHME model that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci uh, spent a lot of time relying on. And it had been April 24th, it moved April 23rd, then April 20th, then back to the 24th, and now the 1st. But though it has extended to peak resources, uh, it did originally show a bed shortage. And now it shows that we're not going to come even near the total number of beds. And then the ICU bed shortage, it suggests, has gone from 500 down to 300 to today. It's 218. So headed in the right direction, as is the number of invasive ventilators needed. So it looks like there's, even though it's pushed off now, the peak to May 1st, it, it does look like we're definitely headed in the right direction as far as capacity and resources go. Well, and I would say, too, on the ICU bed capacity, Eric, I feel a lot better than what the model says. Um, a lot of these stand-up facilities, uh, we just got a picture that I'll be tweeting out here shortly of some of the pods that we're having built that actually the state is purchasing. The first one's going down to the Albany to, to help with the Phoebe situation. We've got one headed to Rome. We're sending one to Gainesville and one to Macon. Uh, two of those, or at least one of them, has been constructed or be shipped and the rest of it will be finished when it gets onto the ground. So, you know, that plan's in action. Piedmont finished their tower four months early because we cut out a bunch of government red tape and permitting issues to help them, you know, in this emergency situation, be able to get that work done sooner. That's open. They're doing a, a great job. And I had a, a call with the metro area hospital CEOs earlier today, and we've been doing that with the associations as well. And, and other hospital CEOs all around the state to continue to gauge what their bed capacity is. And they're really doing a lot of great work turning 
a normal hospital bed into some one that would be a, a ICU or maybe not ICU, but more of a critical care bed where we could care for a COVID patient, have them a, a respirator in that room and give that person the treatment they need. So they've done a lot of great work working with General Cardin and our team that I charge to find us that capacity. And uh, they've done a great job doing that. And then our, mo- our models also changed a little bit for the better. So we feel a lot better than we did, you know, two weeks ago. Now, I, I want to, since you're, you're a captured audience with me here for just a minute, I, I want to ask you one more question on this. Mentioning the hospital getting open four months earlier, are you guys keeping track of what's being waived to get these things open so that we can assess whether or not the, the regulations that would otherwise be there will be necessary later? Oh, definitely. I think there's a lot of things that we're learning uh, now and, and looking at things that we could do in the future that just takes out some of the bureaucracy and red tape. And I, I remember, you know, when the, the bridge burned on or a section of the uh, I-85 burned and, you know, you basically cut down all the red tape, just cut out the, the interventions and said, hey, we got to build this road back and they got it done in record time. And we can do the same thing with a lot of these regulations that we're seeing in government. And we have a duty to make sure that we're doing things safely. But just the cost and the time that are associated with many of those things. I think we're going to learn a lot of good lessons. And look here, just like the private sector is doing right now. You know, people are learning an awful lot about telecommuting and how their employees can be productive by not coming into the office. And you just think about what Metro Atlanta traffic would look like if somehow a lot of these bigger uh, companies and businesses that are, you know, bringing people into the metro area every day, if they could just telework, you know, 10, 20% of their workforce one or two days a week, it would be incredible what that would do for our traffic situation. Well, I, I have seen several memes on, on Instagram and likewise that, that it turns out it's the non-essential people who are causing all the traffic jams in Atlanta. <laughs> Now, related to that, uh, when we get back up and running, uh, do you foresee right now, Is it are we going to have a slow roll to get things up, or will it be region by region, or, or do we want to try to do the state at one time? I don't know that I necessarily have that answer right now. I do appreciate the president's leadership and optimism on you know, him wanting to restart the economy. I know he's working with the health care experts around him. Um, Dr. Burtz and Fauci and other people and a lot of really smart business people to figure out how we do that. Uh, private sector, I believe, is going to have a big role to play in that, Eric. Um, the private sector is going to have to make sure that they can protect their employees. They have obligations, certainly, to do that. And they got to make sure that their customers are comfortable coming back in their establishments, whether it's a restaurant or a bank or going to the airport or, you know, going into the dentist office every day or to simply get a haircut. And I know you know, I can speak for myself. I'm ready to go do that right now. I mean, I'd love to be able to go to the barber shop right now. You'd but we're going to have to figure out, you know, how we do that. And if it, you know, encompasses, you know, barbers or the customer being in a mask, we've got to make sure that we have that availability or have that test where people can test themselves before they leave to go to work every day uh, to protect their coworkers and, and their customers or not. And, you know, right now we just don't have that capacity because the whole world is short on PPE. And uh, But that's something that's going to change daily. We're seeing those supplies, uh, you know, those supply chains open up just a little bit. But I think they're going to get tighter once you see people talking about going back and restarting the economy because there's going to be a lot more people that need uh, those different uh, PPE equipment besides just healthcare workers. Right. 
Well, it, regarding the, the PPE equipment and, and the like, there have been several reports around the country that hospitals are being stretched thin right now. The vice president said yesterday that uh, there haven't been any overwhelmed hospitals yet. Uh, they are a little bit concerned with where the peak may head nationwide. What's it looking like as far as the state of play in, in Georgia? I, and I realize Darty County, to some degree, is an exception for being overwhelmed compared to everything else. Yeah, it definitely is down there, but I'll say this, they have, uh, you know, we've shipped a lot of PPE to them. Uh, they've had a lot of people that have donated things to them. Um, and I don't think that they have gone. There's been days where they were, they were scrambling and we were too. Um, but the, the supply, I just know from talking to the hospitals, is still tight and it's just a new norm. You know, these places are used to having, you know, a couple of months worth of a, a PPE in storage or, or so, certainly several weeks, and that's just not the norm that we're in today. I do feel very confident in what the president, the vice president, the task force is doing and the people at, at FEMA and others that are that are holding these supplies and they're sending them where the data tells them that they need to go in time to be able to handle the peak. And I know for us, I'd love to have more PPE right now, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that you know, places like New York and, and New Orleans needed that a lot worse than we did several weeks ago. And I will tell people, too, that every single time I have called or needed something, uh, I have been able to get either the vice president, the president, you know, Pete Gaynor called me Monday morning and said, hey, FEMA stands ready to help with your storm response. Let us know. I mean, they have been great about communicating. And I do think they have a, a pulse on who needs what and when they need it. Um, I do also think there's been people that cried wolf and they call their hand on that. So that's one reason that we've told our hospital folks, look, y'all got to be honest with you, with us. You've got to give us the correct data. We've got to report that to FEMA uh, so that they can strategically use the stockpile if we're unable to get that equipment ourselves. And look, we're in the marketplace too. We had a, a few ventilators that the state bought that came in last weekend. We've deployed, I think, some of those. We're still holding others to see where the, the surge happens first in our state, and we're being very smart, but we're also, you know, trying to help the people out that are in desperate need need it. And, you know, we have a shipment of stuff going to Augusta tomorrow to some of the long-term care facilities that uh, have a real problem over there, and General Cardin's team is going to reclean that facility. They've been there once. They're going back. So uh, people just need to know that we have, we're in great communication with our federal partners, but also our local partners as well on the response. Uh, Governor Kemp, last question for you. What are you looking at moving forward? What, what's, what's the most, uh, the thing you're most focused on right now? Well, I, I feel good, but I'm still focused on this bed capacity. We got a, you know, we got the plans in place. Now we got to get it built out and we're working on that as we speak. I'm very confident that that will happen. We got the staff and contract done. We'll get that implemented. We're working on a process for how you, you know, ask for those uh, resources. We're gonna we're gonna move the needle on testing. I'm gonna stay focused and stay on people every day. And General Cardin knows that he has a direct order for me to work with Dr. Toomey and make that happen. And then we're gonna continue to be able to do everything that we humanly possibly can to help our nursing homes and our long-term care facilities. And that is my focus, you know, every waking hour right now uh, outside of responding to the terrible storms that we saw Easter night and Monday morning. Governor Kemp, I sure appreciate you stopping by. That sure is helpful. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. Governor Brian Kemp.
I continue to get uh, direct messages on Instagram and people tagging me and on social media, people buying Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce, and, and you should buy it too. Uh, it's it's a great Georgia product. Uh, it, it's manufactured actually here in Macon, where I am. Uh, it's the oldest commercially produced commercial uh, barbecue sauce uh, in the nation, uh, over 80 years. In fact, if you go to mrsgriffins.com right now, you can get uh, a third bottle free. You buy two, get a third one free. Great deal, great barbecue sauce. It, it's mustard-based. Uh, it's it's an old sauce. It, it, I got to imagine this, and, and you know, I, I need to write a piece for the American Spectator on on the history of cooking in the United States of, of residential cooking. Uh, I should probably weave it in there because uh, down in South Georgia, this is it, thus ends the ad for Mrs. Griffin's. But I'm going to continue the train of thought here. My wife's grandfather down in South Georgia made a a barbecue sauce for chicken, and it was it was mustard based. I don't know, mustard and ketchup and vinegar and, and some other stuff. And and when we got married, she would make it. And it was just, it was too, I don't know, it was it was too astringent, if, if that's a good word for it for me. Uh, but Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce is, is very much like that, but it's it's got a, a mellower flavor. It's not that, I don't know, that that doesn't make your mouth pucker up like that. It, it's, it's good on wings and stuff. I, I've been thinking I want to get a Rectech grill because I got a big green egg and I love my big green egg. But at this point, I've kind of mastered it, and now I want more volume because I, I know I can do it. Uh, I can do it with or without all the little gadgets and stuff, but I'm, I'm thinking I want something more uh, because I want to be able to smoke more meat. I can only hold I've got a large big green egg. I can do a big turkey. I can do a big Boston butt. I can't do a lot of stuff at one time. And now I'm thinking I want something, and maybe I don't want a Traeger, and the reason I don't want a Traeger is because, I, I mean, no offense to those of you who have them. I know people love them. they got a cult following, but they're kind of the – the Walmart of the of the wood pellet grills, you, you, you go get one every couple of years because they fall apart. The Rectech is made over in Augusta, and it's awesome. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's handmade. It is it's well built. I know I've got several friends who have them and they love them. And now I'm thinking I want capacity. I want to be able to smoke. I want to be able to grill. I want to be able to do wings. I've never been a big wing eater. Steve Hayes actually uh, from Fox News. Uh, was the first person to make me eat wings. Believe it or not, I was a grown man with children and on radio before I ever had wings because they're messy and I don't like the mess. And now I'm kind of like, all right, I'll, I'll go. There's this great place in Macon called Piedmont uh, Brewery, and they've got great wings, and I'll eat the wings there, but they're so messy. I'm just, I don't like all mess on my hands, but they're good. And and now I want something where I can make a lot of wings, and, and a Rectex seems like it, but using the Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce on them. It, it is, it's just the perfect balance and it's great on everything, but I use it on a lot of chicken and pork. Uh, and so it's, it's cool that they're now a sponsor of the program. Uh, and I hope you'll go check them out. They're at I any local grocery store. You can get them at, at Winn-Dixie. You can get them at uh, Piggly Wiggly. You can get them at, at your local Walmart. They're everywhere and they're local. So I know they're in stock. I'm like, I can't find Heinz ketchup. I, I went to Fresh Market the other day to find Heinz ketchup and they weren't there. Uh, they were they were sold out there, and I'd got some there a couple of weeks ago because they've been sold out at Publix as well. And I went to Kroger, and they were sold out at Publix. You know, we clearly are having supply chain problems in the country, and everyone – and, you know, I've been guilty of it. I've been telling you there are no supply chain problems, and, and everybody was telling me there are no supply chain problems. And now there is very clearly a supply chain problem out there, and it's not just the paper products. I was able to find uh, in my closet toilet paper the other day. <laughs> was cleaning out the closet like oh we got a box of German in here <laughs> but the paper towels nope um I, I do have some paper towels allegedly coming from Amazon 
uh, getting a paper towel shipment, but they're, they're few and far between on there as well. <laughs> just we, we got shortages, people. Frozen pizzas? There's a shortage of frozen pizzas. Although, you know, okay, I, I mentioned this before, but this is a good time to do it because I went over to Publix last night because I knew when they were restocking some stuff that I needed. And I went over there, I was able to get bacon and bread and milk and butter and a few other things that, that are running short as people continue to stop. And, you know, part of it is the shortages for, like, the paper products. A lot of people, they're home now, so they're using more, so they're buying more in addition to people are hoarding. But then there's some stuff like butter and flour and stuff like that are hard to find because there are more people at home with more time on their hands. And so they're like me thinking, hmm, I'm going to do a sourdough starter, which, by the way, I'm continuing to work on my bread skills. And the sourdough starter is pretty freaking fantastic that I've made. Uh, and and I'm using more flour than I expected like everyone else is. And I actually have some sneaky, I'm not telling you people where I can get good flour, uh, but it's good. It, it is, it's, it's good stuff um, to be able to get it. But some stuff is just hard to find right now. And they keep saying, oh, no supply chain. No, there really is. I don't know if you've heard Smithfield Farms that makes all the pork in the country. They've had a COVID-19 infestation at their plant. They've had to shut it down. Hormel, thankfully, has not. We eat Hormel bacon in our house. And, and they're still good. But Smithfield having some problems. And it's going to impact more and more of the supply chain. But, man, the paper products are hard to find. When we come back, we got to get into the president's press conference and all that audio I made Charlie cut up that I haven't actually played yet today. It is 35 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is my show. And the phone number here is 877-973-7425. I am going to go to the phones. Today is the day that all the Jakes call in. We're going to a different Jake. Jake, welcome. How are you? Hey, Eric. Thank you very much for taking my call. I, I didn't want to bother you again. I've called before many times, but um, this morning I, I got some donations from uh, Jimmy John's, Domino's, and Open MRI food donations for the um, Loaves and Fishes Ministry on MLK Boulevard in Bacon because they, they've, they're feeding the homeless and the hungry. And I brought it down about 11.15 and some donations from Kroger as well. And uh, there are about 40 or 50 people standing in line waiting for lunch. And one woman had a homemade mask on, but there were no gloves, no masks. And people were asking me for masks. And I said, I don't have any extra masks, ma'am. I wish I did. So I drove down by daybreak, and guess what? Same thing. No masks, no gloves. I've appealed to the county commissioners to have the mayor put out a PSA where you would uh, announce to people, anybody that can sew, sew some masks. We need masks. The people are carrying their life belongings on their back. They don't have the wherewithal to go make a mask or, you know, mm-hmm. buy, buy anything. But I, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. And, and I'm just asking you to help. Well, you know, at first, I'm glad you called in on this. And I, I know my wife and, and a number of her friends have been in their sewing rooms sewing nonstop for healthcare workers who themselves are having trouble right, right now. Uh, and I wish I knew the answer to it. I actually had someone uh, reach out to me day before yesterday and say he wanted to to drive down because I was saying I, I'm going to the grocery store and I'm seeing people in masks. I don't know where they're getting them from because I can't even find them on Amazon. And I assume it's just people right. who are connected in the medical community. And he wanted to bring me a box. And I was like, no, you know, I, I'm I'm okay. Uh, there are a lot of other people who need them more than me. I mostly stay home. I'm fine. And you're right. The homeless right. population, uh, particularly when they're queuing up for fruit lines and stuff, 
they they're there together and they need them. Um, and, and I'm happy to raise, I don't know the answer, but I'm happy to raise awareness. I know in Bibb County, a couple of the county commissioners do listen to the program. Uh, I'm hoping they're listening right now because it's going to be a problem. In fact, if you heard the, my conversation with the governor, uh, in, in the last half I hour, did. he was talking about in, in the nursing homes, it's, it's a problem. Exactly. And it's just, well, I'm it's just thinking, magnify. I'm just thinking that yeah, there's so many people in, in middle Georgia, I know how, know how to sew and, just appeal to everybody. Hey, make as many masks as you can. Bring them down to the, you know, the homeless shelters and all these places that really could use them. These people are standing in line next to each other, with their backpacks on, waiting for lunch. I mean, no gloves, no mask, and I'm like, whoa, you know. Yeah. Just a breeding ground right there, right, right in front and, of. And I, I would imagine. Fishes. I don't want to speak for them, but I, I would imagine if you dropped them off at either the Salvation Army or Loaves and Fishes or, or places like that 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 take care of the homeless, that they would readily accept them and, and distribute them to the homeless and, and yes, they would. Yes, they would. Yeah, I know. They I, would. I just, man. And, and, you know, as an aside, uh, Jake, I'm, I'm glad you called in and, and I, I want to pivot real quick. Cause you're mentioning getting donations to help with the food, but man, there's a, there are a lot of people in need right now. And I'm hearing more and more people who are out of work. They're having to rely on, on food banks and, and soup kitchens and yes. things like that. And it's not just the homeless standing in line. It, it, it's other people, and it's just going to spread further in the community if it gets into that population. I agree with you 100%. Well, well anything listen, you can I, do, Eric, to get that message out, I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you for calling in on that. It, it, it's something I, I've, I've read the headlines on it, and I didn't think about it in our own communities here. Um, and, you know, if I recall right, uh, so we're on uh, WRGA up in Rome. WRGAnews.com is their website. And I think it was on their site. Don't hold me to that, but I think it was on their site that some of the Rome County commissioners uh, up in Floyd County also have that concern with the homeless population there. Um, man, I got to tell you, I think if I was homeless, Rome would be where I wanted to be because it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe I should say, I'm sorry. I just, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place and the people are so nice. Uh, not that they're not nice where I live, but I just, I love Rome. Um, at Berry College, by the way, I, I read the other day, got some some award for the number of trees and the beauty of this. Berry is probably the most beautiful campus on, on planet Earth. But in any event, I, I know in Floyd County, there's been a concern, and I think I read it on, on WRGA's website, uh, but it, it's a problem around the country right now. And it is increasingly a situation where you have poor people who are out of work, who are having to rely on community help, and they're having to get in line with the homeless population, and you're going to see the virus spread again if we can't. Uh, so what Jake is saying, if, if you're in the business of making masks and you're not sure where else or who else needs them, I bet your local soup kitchens and community food banks and places like that would gladly take them off your hands. Uh, and also the, the, the disposable ones. Listen, I appreciate the sentiment of now I'm, I'm seeing an email come across as I'm sitting here talking from a listener uh, who wants to bring me masks. And I appreciate the sentiment. My wife actually did make me a cloth one. And I realized the cloth ones are not as good as the N95 ones or even the, the surgical masks. Um, and I'm okay with that and using it if I need to because there are still so many people who actually need masks more than me. I am largely uh, at home. I will venture to the grocery store or through a drive-through to pick up food, but I'm okay. 
And there are a lot of people who aren't and need it more. Now, uh, there are also a lot of groups out there that need help. The president has announced he's going to intervene to help the airline industry. Uh, I read somewhere the other day, I'm on an email list, and I think I read that in January, Delta had a million passengers, and this past month had 125,000 passengers. I can't imagine that that number is right. Uh, but, but I, someone who would know, say it's, it's basically a massively dramatic fall off and it's a big deal. And the president has realized that the airlines need help. My problem is that they're having to surrender, uh, shares in the company to the government. So the government's going to take a 1% stake in Delta and bail out Delta. Here's the president. Very importantly, I'd like to begin by saying that we've just reached agreement. The Secretary of Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, uh, with the major airlines, all of our great airlines, to participate in a payroll support program. This agreement will fully support airline industry workers, preserve the vital role airlines play in our economy, and protect taxpayers. Our airlines are now in good shape, and uh, they will get over a very tough period of time that was not caused by them. They do need the help. And I don't like the government taking a stake. And I don't blame the companies. American Airlines has also given the government a stake in, in the company. I don't blame the companies for doing that. They need the help. And I, I see people blasting uh, these airlines for taking government money. They came through 9-11. They needed help then. Everything went fine. They became very profitable. They worked. And I realized that a lot of times they became profitable by nickel and diming us. Let's be honest. Uh, they're nickel and diming us. Uh, they, they charge you for this. They charge you for that. They charge you for everything. But concurrent to that, they're also having their industry wiped out by a virus. And these are American jobs. This is These are American companies. Uh, they are controlled predominantly by Americans because of, of federal ownership rules of the airlines. Uh, they're serving Americans. They're get, helping deliver the mail. They're helping deliver packages. They're doing all these sorts of things. And they're on hard times. And I'm okay with them getting a bailout. I really don't like the fact that the government, though, feels like they should have an interest in it. That, that I think is deeply problematic. Now, the other thing, uh, the president said this yesterday, and he's getting attacked for this, and this is infuriating to me. But we have to get our sports back. I'm tired of watching baseball games that are 14 years old. Okay, I'm not. let me be clear here. I'm not aggravated or mad at the president for saying this. There, there are reporters. I saw one from CNN saying, oh, the president says he's got time to watch reruns of baseball games when we're in the middle of a crisis. I thought these people didn't want the president of the United States to be micromanaging things. Do they do do they want this president, a non-healthcare expert, micromanaging things? Because I thought they didn't. So the president, the president of the United States of America is spending some downtime watching reruns of baseball games. One it's nice to know that he's such a patriot he watches America's pastime. Do even George Bush and Barack Obama took time to have downtime, to watch sports, go play golf, things like this. President hadn't played golf in a little while. Frankly, I would rather every president go play golf. When the president is on the golf course, he's not plotting ways to take our liberty away.
And that goes for all presidents. And yet to see the media, I mean, this president, say what you will about him, but he really is in a, in a catch-22 with the press. If the president were to engage on an hourly basis over this virus, the press would attack him for interfering with the work of the experts. So he's not doing that. And they're attacking him for not interfering with the work of the experts. He, he can't win with the press. He cannot do it. If this president, I, I, someone said this the other day, that if the president came out and cured cancer tomorrow, uh, the media would attack him for putting a bunch of oncologists out of work. And I think that's true. I think that's fair assessment. Listen, I, I got plenty of criticisms of the president, uh, and I say them regularly. I share them with you. You send me hate mail because I've said something not nice about the president that you disagree with. But I, I, I've spent more time of late defending the president because of the unfair coverage from the press, the, the unwillingness of the media to be fair to him and to cover him as they would in the other administration. You know, one of the things I've noticed here is that the is that the media is upset because this is a unique president who does behave differently and they the part the chief grievance of the media these days really is that this president doesn't behave as other presidents behaved and the american people actually picked him because they did not want the status quo and the media is mad at him because he is not the status quo and essentially the media is mad at him because they're mad at the american public and they can't actually go out and attack the american public i mean they do some you're racist bigot homophobes for voting for him but they can't go they can't spend that much time or no one would watch him. So they got to attack the president as a proxy for attacking you. Back to the phones we go. Joy in Rome. Welcome to the program. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Um, yes, I just had a question on your stimulus uh, check about VA caregivers. Uh -huh. Do we qualify or do we need to file since we do not uh, pay taxes? Uh, so I, I read an article the other day, and assuming the article is right, uh, you do not have to file your taxes. People who people who get government benefits in, in one way or another from the VA or other programs, Social Security, Disability, and don't otherwise file taxes are presumed to qualify at the maximum rate for the stimulus check, but it will take slightly longer to get you those checks. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, again, uh, keep in mind that I read an article. So if that guy's wrong, I'm wrong. But that is my understanding. And, and also, uh, there is a guide. Uh, if you text DATA to 33777, uh, you'll get back a bunch of links. And one of them is, is to Marco Rubio uh, put out a, a kind of a, a document explaining the stimulus checks. And one of the things is if you're on Social Security Disability, or you're getting social you're getting social security you're on social security disability or you're getting VA compensation that even though you do not file taxes you will be treated as a taxpayer for purposes of the stimulus checks and you will get them and you will get the the maximum amount the the $1200 per person um so you should get the check, uh, but again, that all depends on, you know, one of the, the, the downsides of this is that the Treasury Department has gotten so much power to interpret and twist things that I, I'm, I'm just, it, it aggravates me. Congress passed a law, set out how it wanted things to be done, and the, and the plans continue to be twisted by the bureaucrats 
uh, who are who are funding these things. Now, the other thing the president wants to do is say he wants to approve the plans for reopening the country. Here he is at his press conference. And I think we're going to top those records, okay? And I think we're going to top them soon, once we get rid of the invisible enemy, which will happen. The plans to reopen the country are close to being finalized, and we will soon be sharing details and new guidelines with everybody. I will be speaking to all 50 governors very shortly, and I will then be authorizing each individual governor of each individual state to implement a reopening and a very powerful reopening plan of their state at a time and in a manner as most appropriate. The day will be very close because certain states, as you know, are in much different uh, condition and in a much different place than other states. It's going to be very, very close, maybe even before the date of May 1st. So that will be for some states. Actually, there are over 20 that are in extremely good shape. You know, I, I want to stop it there. It goes on a little bit more. But here, here's the here's the here's the the crazy thing. You know, the media rushed out and said the president can't do this. He doesn't have the power to do this. NBC News issued a dissertation on on the Tenth Amendment, and I agree. By the way, the the president has no authority on when states can reopen for business, when states can end shelter in place, when states can say go back to work. And, and but what's so interesting is in the past twenty four hours. Some of the very same reporters who have attacked the president now say, wait a second, if he's in total control, he owns this. It's going to be all his fault. We can blame him for everything. And there's almost a giddiness now in parts of the media that the president said it because now they want to blame him for everything. The president says he's in total control. That means it's all his fault. Pay no attention to the disaster in New York City because of de Blasio. The president says he's in total control. Man, it just makes you, I mean, we, we need an honest press in this country. And I just think China is, is increasingly buying off members of the press. It is me. I'm glad you've joined me today. I hope I've kept you informed and entertained. And we're not done yet. What is this? I'm getting an angry email from someone. Yeah, okay. Um. I'm, yeah. People are upset about the bailout. I've got one email from people who 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 isn't. Uh, one person asking if GM ever did repay their bailout money. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, GM, the, the government gave up control of GM. Remember the, the government in the auto bailout that George Bush, not Barack Obama, George Bush did it and took partial ownership of General Motors and the government divested in the Obama administration because General Motors had actually uh, made it, met its obligations. I still think it's a terrible idea. Uh, the government should not own uh, shares in private corporations. This is socialism, and, and it's a bad thing. Uh, before I move on, this hour of the show is sponsored by First Liberty of Georgia. And if you haven't heard, the government is going to expand the payroll protection program uh, they, they've already run out of money. So many people have applied. They're adding more money to it. It should be done by the end of this week. 
And there are big banks out there that are refusing to help small businesses get in. And the reason big banks aren't helping small businesses get in is because they've got financial criteria and they're afraid some of these businesses are going to have hard times and they don't want to be involved with these small businesses. And there are smaller companies that are helping small businesses. The small businesses are sticking together. One of the great ones is First Liberty Georgia. The Frost family, if you're in politics in Georgia, you probably know the Frost. They're fantastic people. Uh, Brant Frost V, he is uh, what uh, the first vice chair of the state GOP. Great family, good Christian family. They're in Noonan. If you're listening anywhere in the United States, they can help you. Their website is firstlibertyga.com. Firstlibertyga.com. And if you're a business of 500 people or less, and you need the payroll protection program so that you don't have to lay off your workers, let them know I sent you. Go to firstlibertyga.com. They can help you get into the program faster than a lot of big banks will because they make their own lending decisions. They're good people. Uh, I highly recommend them. Firstlibertyga.com is their website. And thanks to their continued sponsorship of the program, I can't thank them enough. Uh, They're good people. Now, let's see. How much time do I have? I got some time here. Uh, One more thing. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, there's a huge protest in Michigan today, uh, looks like more than a thousand people in an automobile convoy driving to Lansing, Michigan to protest Governor Whitmer, who the genius has decided she can decide what is and is not essential, not in terms of businesses, but in the products a business sells. Here's Judge Napolitano on Fox News. There's no good morning, Stuart. There's no legal authority for this whatsoever. But you and I talked yesterday about the slow motion loss of civil liberties, almost as if she had been watching your show. The governor of Michigan issued this bizarre so-called executive order yesterday in which she actually named some of the non-essential items. First on her list is garden hoses. How in heaven and earth can the purchase of a garden hose possibly impair public health? It's April in America. This is when people buy and use garden hoses. The people of Michigan are rightly up in arms. There is no constitutional authority for Governor Whitmer to do this, and there is no legal authority under Michigan law for her to do this. And I encourage Walmart and Costco and and Home Depot and Lowe's and all those big box stores to tell the governor to take a hike and sell what people want to buy. Amen. If you leave the business open, you have no discretion in what they can sell. That's a general rule. And the fact that she thinks she can, the little despots of America are revealing themselves. And it is an ugly, ugly look, including your neighbor who is nosy and calling the cops on you because you got people on your front porch. Uh, those people, oh, I just, it, it, yeah, well, I, I would utter profanity, but we're at the end of the show. It's probably good. I'll talk to you guys about this topic tomorrow.